Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Okay, we have with us today a figure who is well-known to our audience, Ross Dowdat, who delivered the Erasmus Lecture a few years ago. He is a columnist at the New York Times on the op-ed page. He's the author of several books, including To Change the Church, Bad Religion, and Privilege, co-author of of a volume called Grand New Party. Uh, Before joining the Times, he was a senior editor for The Atlantic. He's a film critic for National Review, and he co-hosts a podcast with The New York Times entitled The Argument. Uh, Welcome, Ross. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. All right. Well, our topic today is a book that's just out entitled The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. And before getting to that, Ross, I, I have to mention, I don't think I've ever told you this, but you first came to my attention when I read something. This must have been about 15, 17 years ago an essay I read by some undergraduate, I think the author was still an undergraduate, named Ross Do, Do That Dow, I, I wasn't sure. And it was about being in a class, I think it was an American studies, cultural studies kind of class, and part of the essay was on an assignment, a final course assignment, where you had to go to a museum and, and pick an object and, and write about it. Can you tell us the story of that essay? That that was really a breakout essay for you, right? That was a well. It was a piece of the book actually that I ended up writing about Harvard. Um, so I was working as a very lowly junior researcher at the Atlantic magazine then. Um, but because I had you know talked some foolish person into publishing my book, I was able to get a piece of the book about the Harvard curriculum. Uh, published in the Atlantic, and so that was my first, my first, I guess, major essay in the world of letters or something, if you wanna, if you wanna put it like that. It, does, um, it, it circulated a, very widely, but you, you were only a year or two out of college by then, weren't you? Yeah, I was very presumptuous. I was like 24, and you know, they tell you to write what you know, and so all I knew at that point was that I've spent four years in a really strange and interesting you know, sort of factory for American elites. And so I, I wrote about it. Um, and the book had a lot more sort of social life and embarrassing sex scenes and things like that. Um, but the Atlantic piece was happily just focused on the weaknesses of the Harvard curriculum and how easy it was to, you know, game the kind of lame, mildly postmodern assignments that you got in some of the classes. 
what what stood out for me was this assignment where you you had to go to a museum and look at an object. It was a kind of a material culture experiment and start writing about it and thinking about it and researching it. And you understood that there was something a little bit fraudulent about this exercise, but you you got into it, and I rem- I think I remember the line you said at the end. I almost started believing in what I was saying. <laughs> you yeah, you probably remember it better than I do, but yeah, I think it was in a class on the American West, um, and there was an exhibit of Native American artifacts, probably uh, at one of the Harvard museums, and so we were just sort of sent in uh, and. You know, rather than being asked to write a paper about the actual provenance of the objects or, you know, the sort of deep, deep cultural history behind them or something of their significance, we were just essentially doing a kind of free associative um, sort of reading of them that, yeah, lent lent itself to a certain kind of imaginative, um, pardon my language, bullshit, I think, which was basically which was basically how you got through a lot of classes at, at Harvard. It was a place where you could get an incredibly rigorous and interesting education if you were willing to organize that education rigorously yourself. But the school, it's, the school itself wasn't interested in, you know, they were interested in educating you on how to make your way in the American meritocracy, not on how to read the, the best of anything that had been written or anything like that. Well, that that assignment might be a nice transition into a book about American decadence. So uh, you begin the book on decadence with the Apollo moon landing. Why is that? Well, two reasons. First, because it is a historically convenient moment because it corresponds to the beginning of most of the structural trends I'm writing about. So decadence, as I define it in the book, is basically a combination of... um, economic stagnation, political sclerosis and gridlock, um, demographic decline and cultural repetition and exhaustion, all of which uh, I think characterize the Western world today, um, pending, pending developments with the coronavirus and, and basically and have follow an, an arc that really starts in the late 60s and early 70s, right around when they went to the moon. So you get, you know, the the sort of economic deceleration begins in the 1970s. The collapse of Western birth rates begins around then. Um, and political sclerosis, I think, sort of begins to slowly set in then and then gradually builds to our present era. And then I argue that, you know, in culture, we've sort of ended up trapped in the imaginations of the baby boomers and can't escape. And so it that, too, dates back to the 60s and 70s. So that's it's chronological, but then I think it's also sort of important as a kind of a, a moment of psych of great achievement followed by disappointment that explains a certain amount of the, the psychology of decadence, which is to say that it was the last moment when people thought of a frontier as something that was open or something that was about to be reopened, I guess. And people had the sense that, you know, that this sort of trajectory of Western civilization, the long trajectory from the age of exploration on, was going to continue, right? That we had filled the earth and mapped the globe and gotten to the poles and climbed Mount Everest, but now there was there was a new frontier, and we were going to go there and have a new set of adventures. And that, you know, has obviously turned out not to be the case. And I think that failure to sort of achieve liftoff from Earth sort of 
hangs unspoken as as sort of a a pall in certain ways over the Western world today, where there's a sense that, you know, we're a civilization founded on ideas of progress and development, but we've run out of places to go to or progress towards. And at some level, we're aware of it, but don't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. I I seem to remember a great cultural commentator in the early 70s, beginning by saying space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the, <laughs> but there, there it is, right? And one of the one of the great things about the book, which makes it such a vivid read, is that you really bring back that mood of the the moon landing, of of hope and optimism and looking toward the future, and so that we have things like the predictions that people had in 1967 or 1969 that what we would be doing in space just a few decades on, what would be, we would be doing on Earth would be an extraordinary advance, that, that, this, that this kind of development of, you know, the rocket program would be paralleled in all different kinds of ways so that by 1990, remember the Blade Runner movie? That, that, was, that was supposed to take place in 2021, I think. The original Blade Runner movie was, was, was supposed to be the year or some of those Star Trek episodes that talked about the '90s. Right, Star Trek. Star Trek has Star Trek has us developing all kinds of wild cloning technologies by the 1990s. So that then you have the eugenic wars, where they fight with the genetic supermen who become Khan and the Wrath of Khan, and so on. And then we get we basically go into space somewhere in the middle to late. 21st century after we've passed through the sort of, you you know, the eugenics conflicts. Um, and yeah, and Blade Runner, what's funny about Blade Runner, right, is that it's a movie that is in certain ways a dystopia, right? It's not an incredibly optimistic vision of the future. And yet in terms of technological progress, it far outstrips anything we've actually achieved. So there's, you know, there's acid rain and it's a neo-noir setting and and, um, you know, these these robot androids we've invented are sort of tragic figures who have become kind of our, our serfs. So it's very dark. But at the same time, it's actually quite optimistic in terms of what you could achieve technologically, not just in breakthroughs in creating androids, but also just the idea that we would be sending them out to fight, you know, space battles <laughs> out by the moons of Jupiter and so on, that you would have a new life and the off-world colonies and all of these things. And and that, so even the dystopias of 40 years ago assumed a certain kind of progress that we've basically achieved in one zone. We've achieved it in, in communication and simulation with the, the digital revolution, the iPhone and everything else. And that's, that's real innovation. It's not fake. Um, but it falls well short of, you know, the confident predictions that we would have space elevators and moon colonies and that, you know, in the sci-fi of the 50s, people are always, they have these shrunk down atomic energy units that are powering their homes and cars, you know, a nuclear reactor in every automobile. And we, we haven't come close to any of that, um, I would say. You, you, you say at one point that while the speed of experience seems to be accelerating, the speed of actual change has not. How so? Well, if you get your news from social media, right, if you get it on your iPhone, it's all instant. So every day, the whole world happens in a very small device that you carry in your pocket. And this is an acceleration from 
the world of 24-hour cable news where it's always happening, but you have to turn on the TV to, <laughs> to encounter it, um, which is itself an acceleration from the world of the daily newspaper. And, of, you know, it's not a new thing to to note the weird psychological effects of this. Thoreau, right, famously complained about how the trains bring news too fast and over, you know, it becomes overwhelming. But it does seem like we've reached a kind of saturation point. It's hard to imagine how we would get news any faster than we do today. And that makes it seem like everything is happening faster because you're digesting it faster. You get more news, you encounter more events and so on. Um, but I think at the macro level, it's not clear, you know, to take, take, for instance, the Trump presidency, right? In the world of social media, this has been an insanely eventful presidency. There's an incredible controversy every week. And Trump has said this and his enemies have said that. And, and, you know, every hour, right. And, but, and yet for the first three years, um, you know, in terms of legislation passed, there's nothing that compared to the Reagan revolution or the great society or anything like that. In terms of foreign policy, there was actually just a lot of stasis, nothing even as dramatic as the Iraq war. Thankfully, it has not actually been an incredibly eventful presidency. I'm going to say again, pending the coronavirus, it just has felt like one on social media. Right. And, and this is one reason that you would say that Donald Trump is, quote, a leader for a decadent age. A lot a, a lot seems to be going on, but nothing really uh, in, in, in concrete terms is really going on. Well, and Trump is fascinating because in certain ways he in certain ways he embodies decadence, both in his sort of personal garishness and so on, but also in the way that he leans into this sort of, you know, 24 hour or, you know, minute by minute news cycle where you're constantly distracted by trivialities. At the same time, he's also a rebel against decadence in the sense that a big part of his appeal is this sense of nostalgia for a world where the future was supposed to be brighter than it's turned out to be, right? Make America Great Again is a sort of callback to the world of Trump's own youth, to the world of the moon landing. Um, so it's it's both at once. He sort of he, he embodies certain qualities that I'm calling decadent, but he also shows that there is discontent with decadence that a variety of figures can exploit that, you know, people people are not just content with stagnation. They sort of want a way out. But since they don't see one, you end up with the reality television version. Mm -hmm. And that this ends up producing what what you identify early on in the book as a resignation over over some, anything real happening or changing. You say this resignation haunts our present civilization. Is, is the resignation the prime sign of our decadence, do you think? Yeah, I think the feeling that um, the feeling that it must never have been possible to get off this world anyway, <laughs> the feeling the feeling that, well, I mean, let, let me give you a more sort of political philosophical example, right? Where has sort of elite liberalism in the Western world ended up? It's ended up with a theory of the cosmos that is secular and materialistic and sort of excludes divine revelation, um, you know, and any kind of any any kind of sort of strong religious view. At the same time, it maintains a moral perspective that is intensely self-righteous and focused on various moral absolutes, 
um, a, a, you know, a sort of ever expanding list in certain ways. The the new progressive movement is is not actually morally relativist, as conservatives like to say. It has a, it has a very strident catechism. But these two things don't actually fit together, right? You can't, if you have the sort of, you know, strict, hard Darwinian materialist world picture, you can't generate a sort of coherent theory of human rights out of it. And people know this. That's the thing. People people know that this is not actually a coherent world picture, but they just choose to live with it because nobody wants to go back to Christianity and when we went forward into post-Christianity, the result was the Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, and nobody wants to do that. So we just sort of sit here with this, you know, very important world picture that doesn't really make sense. And people accept it. They're sort of resigned to it as the least bad alternative. And I think that's true. That's just one example. But I think it's true across a range, um, a range of Western endeavors right now. You, you have a nice term under which that phenomenon might fit, you say, let's pretendism. What is let's pretendism? Well, so this is, I think I use that when I'm talking about uh, Uber and Theranos. Yes. Uber, yes. right. These sort of these, these companies where sort of where the internet, where the internet economy meets the real economy, right? So the internet economy has been very successful at building companies that let you communicate online, right? The most successful companies or let you order something online. The internet economy has not been very effective at sort of throwing off surplus that then gets channeled into innovation in transportation or the built environment or the workplace or medicine and so on. And But it does generate a lot of wealth. People just can't figure out how to effectively spend it. So you have all of these companies that have immense amounts of venture capital put into them that are sort of all runway and no takeoff, right? And sometimes they turn into frauds like Theranos, which you know was supposedly a multi-billion dollar company that was doing something that would have been really valuable to do, that would have been innovative, right? To test blood based on a single drop of blood, but nobody could actually figure out how to do it. <laughs> so eventually the company became a fraud and then collapsed. Or we work, you know, the great... Uh, you know, sort of digital-based office space company that, you know, has has not collapsed the way Theranos did, but turned out to be wildly overvalued. Um, or you have things like self-driving cars, where, you know, you get 80% of the work done, and they say, well, the other 20% will be done in two years, and then two years goes by, and three years, and people say, well, we haven't quite figured out how to make them drive in the rain. <laughs> but other than that, you know, we're set. So. So there's this sense of which we're this we're still this incredibly rich society. We have all this wealth that could be invested in creative, dynamic, innovative companies. We just can't figure out what they are. And so instead, we get these overvalued um, these overvalued companies that collapse upon when they encounter market forces. You you actually have a little formula for this this kind of decadence is when a, when a society is very rich. But it doesn't know what to do with its money. Why? Why? Why don't we know what to do? I mean, is it the decline? You know, you talk about. You have a brief moment where you talk about Israel as one of the few, very few, maybe the only place in which uh, birth rates are reproducing. You know, that 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 are yes. sustainable. They're above. They're well above replacement level. Yep. And is this because? Would you say the religiosity 
promotes fertility. Is that a formula that you say that that you think holds? I think the formula that holds is that you have high fertility when people believe that they are engaged in an important project that will outlast their own lifespan. And the most the simplest way to generate that feeling um, is religious devotion and practice. And so not surprisingly, the highest fertility rates in the Western world are still among religious populations. But Israel offers an example where they have high birth rates among the Orthodox and also high birth rates among secular Jews, secular Israelis, I should say, which suggests that it's not just religion, that if you have a situation where, you know, your entire people um, are in a, you know, are, are in a nation state that is on the one hand sort of their arc after a period of persecution, and on the other hand is sort of embattled and surrounded by enemies, that you will feel some sort of historical mission, some sort of vision of life beyond yourself that, again, just doesn't seem to obtain for secular French people or Spanish people or even many Americans, right? And and I mean, the tricky thing here, this is, you know, the dilemmas of decadence are that you can't just fix that by saying, well, I guess we need to have some terrible enemies <laughs> next door to us, right? You can't announce, well, we have to have babies or the Canadians will invade, right? That I mean, this there isn't, there isn't sort of an easy way out of decadence because you don't want to conjure up a risk of catastrophe. But it, yeah, it definitely seems to be the case that that a a view that there is a view of the individual, the family, your faith, your tribe, extending beyond yourself into the future that has diminished or been lost in a lot of developed countries in Europe, North America, and Asia. And and if they don't have that, it's it's hard just to just to simply tell them that they should have it. When I was reading your chapter on sterility, you know, just, I was thinking just in the last year or two, somehow I've been advising three, many students, but three female students or or ex-students who I was advising them on post-graduation plans and what they were going to do. And somehow children came up, all three of them instantly said, no, 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 children, not only were children not in the picture, but they actively rejected, at least for now, even even the near term idea of having children, and I, I I didn't try to you know convince them out of that, but I didn't know even if <laughs> I didn't, tried. You didn't hand them. You should have handed them a copy of the Deccan Society. <laughs> well, you know, that would now, have, now that we know. persuaded them immediately. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but what what do you say? But yeah, we've to set them? up. I mean, we've set up right. We've well. I mean, that's the other thing, right? It's not just about views of the cosmos and human purpose. We've also set up a society that educates people to believe that it is irrational and irresponsible and self-destructive to have children before the age of about 33, let's say. And, you know, sometimes sometimes it is a bad idea to have children in your early 20s. Uh, I didn't have my first child till my wife and I were 30. Um, but at the same time, and you realize this once you have children, it really is something that it's it's better undertaken when you're not not too old, right? And so we've we've set up a society that sort of it it encourages people to wait a long time to get married in certain ways, to sort of date serially in ways that often preclude settling down. And then you're supposed to sort of cram the wedding, you know, the wedding, your new life together, and the kids into this 
you know, five to six year window in the second half of your 30s. And it shouldn't be surprising that people end up, you know, not finding the right spouse or, you know, waiting too long and having struggling with fertility. Um, it's not, you know, it's again, and that, and that's not a problem of the cosmos. That's a problem of sort of how we educate our young people that is theoretically more solvable, I think, but not by you or I, perhaps. On, on page 72, you begin a section called Welcome to the Kludgeocracy. What is the Kludgeocracy? Um, so it's it's a phrase. Yeah, I think it's a silent I usually say Kludgeocracy. Uh, but it's a phrase from a couple of political scientists that is borrowed, of course, from the Internet world, as all things are, where a kludge is, you know, you have some sort of system that doesn't quite work. And instead of going back to the beginning and making it work, you just add on an extra piece to make it to make it work, even though in adding on that piece, it's just a kludge. It just it you know, it's just sort of a workaround. It doesn't make it elegant or smooth or well-functioning. It just makes it do the thing you need it to do. And this is, I think, a, an apt description of how U.S. government has ended up functioning, basically, that we had, you know, we, we've had sort of a, a period that we, we have a constitution that's 200 years old. We have an administrative state and a welfare state that's now 90 years old that has had sort of new programs put onto it at various points over time. And the Constitution sets up a lot of veto points, you know, for good reasons to sort of constrain power and so on. But when you combine those veto points with the fact that we have this vast bureaucracy that nobody actually, everybody is invested in in some way or another, and nobody wants to change, it makes it really hard to institute any kind of comprehensive program of reform. And so instead, you know, you do. I mean, the last reform of this whole system was. Barack Obama's healthcare law, right, which was the definition of a kludgeocracy. It had no smooth simplicity. It took the existing system and sort of th- sort of jerry-rigged on a couple new a couple new arms and legs at the edges. And I think conservatives overestimated how much it would change because they still thought we were in the heroic age of liberalism, right, where a president could pass some sweeping thing. But and liberals overestimated how much good it would do, and then in the end, it ended up being a you know, a a semi-effective appendage to a system that now has its own set of clients, so it's hard to get rid of in turn. Um, But you don't get, I mean, you you know, there isn't a world where you can get to either the sort of libertarian reforms of the healthcare system or to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All, because those are both too simple. And we have an unwieldy contraption in our government that you can only sort of tack extra arms and legs onto, um, and it makes it incredibly hard <laughs> to get anything done. No, I, th- I think it fits. I think what you, and I think that the healthcare, yeah, your, your analysis there is, is, is I think, right on. Y- you say that strongman politics has afflicted the Republican Party, but that the Democratic Party looks vulnerable to the same thing. Since you wrote that, do you see the Democratic Party moving into the same kind of thing? Well, you know, if we'd been having this conversation two weeks ago, <laughs> but I would have said that the Democratic Party is going through almost exactly the same thing the Republican Party went through with a, you know, a sort of, in the case of Bernie Sanders, a sort of very 
a kind of figure who in a different era would have been a third party candidate, sort of taking over the Democratic Party from within and relying on the weakness of its institutions and the divisions in its establishment to do so. Now, as it turned out, the Democrats are actually a little more effective at being a political party than the Republicans. And so they were able to do or appear to have been able to do what all of the Republicans who didn't want Trump weren't able to do, namely get a bunch of the candidates to get out of the race and unite behind a single alternative in the case, in the case of Joe Biden. So, that, so I think the Democrats are much more with Biden. It's less that they are sort of, you know, evolving towards, towards a, you know, a sort of Trumpian style politics and more that they're retreating back into what I call sustainable decadence, right? The view that, Actually, if you just leave the same elites in charge, even though they're not very competent, we can just sort of keep muddling through. And Biden, as the sort of, you know, friendly but um, but um, decaying monument to liberalism past, is, I think, a perfect avatar for that that kind of politics. Um, so so Sanders represents the rebellion against decadence, which, like Trump, carries opportunities and perils. And Biden represents a sort of reversion to form and just an acceptance that, you know, maintaining the current system is the best that we can do. So, so all of this, I mean, there was no, I mean, it helps, right, that Biden is a former vice president who is generally well liked in the party in the way that Ted Cruz, who was in the end, the alternative to Trump was not well liked by his fellow politicians. That has made this easier. But yeah, I mean, it is it is striking how quickly just about every Democratic candidate has rallied behind Biden, whereas in 2016, there was no there was no rallying. Nobody, nobody dropped out. Jeb Bush didn't drop out and endorse Marco Rubio. Um, Marco Rubio didn't drop out and endorse Ted Cruz. They all sort of ran their own solo campaigns and Trump was able to take them down one by one. Uh, as as we're closing out, there's so much more to talk about in in the book, including the the kindly despotism that seems to be spreading uh, through through America. The panopticon, you call it the pink police state. You're quoting people on sort of the constraints on on behavior and the surveillance that that is happening, especially in the internet age. But I, I think our, our our last question in the old model, Ross, decadence opened a nation to take over by barbarians. But you don't think that that will happen to us. Why not? Because it, it's it's not clear which rival could actually take us down, right? So the Roman Empire was, you know, it was sort of a world civilization for the Mediterranean world, but it wasn't a global civilization. And what's distinctive about our own era is that the decadent West is a global civilization, one that influences every country and culture around the world. And it does seem to me that many of our potential or would-be rivals are more likely to be converging with us in decadence than they are leaping past us. So like China, for instance, one, you know, it's had tremendous growth, but its growth rates are starting to slow down. It has deeper demographic problems than we do, in part because of the one-child policy. So it's not clear to me that it's going to become you know, a sort of dominating rival as opposed to just a more oligarchic and authoritarian sort of echo of what we have in the Western world. Or again, a lot of conservatives worry about an Islamic takeover of Europe, about radical Islam. And, you know, 
Islam is obviously a sort of unassimilated to Western liberalism. But at the same time, the Islamic world is divided by civil war, misgoverned, weak in various ways, and its own birth rates are declining. And it's not clear to me how you go from where the Islamic world is today to the kind of, you know, the kind of Islamic Europe scenario envisioned by Michel Welbeck in Soumission, right? Like, which is that that novel, I think, totally captures the decadence of the West, but it imagines an Islam, an Islamic alternative that's much stronger than the real one. So all of that means that I feel like our own decadence could continue as decadence, you know, has in many empires in the past for a, a while yet to come until there's some genuinely disjunctive moment, which doesn't mean we're not vulnerable to, you know, un, the unexpected. And again, it's weird that, you know, I'm promoting this book while, the, uh, you know, a pandemic, an unexpected pandemic is threatening to ravage the globe. And clearly, we are vulnerable to the coronavirus in part because of our decadence, because of our institutional sclerosis, the fact that, you know, you can't get the CDC and the other parts of the bureaucracy to work together effectively. The fact that we're seeing the weaknesses of Trump's populist style and his Twitter persona. And so decadence definitely makes us vulnerable. It's made us vulnerable to the virus. That's perfectly clear. I'm just still not sure even in a world where, you know, our society is constantly vulnerable to threats, which rival civilization is actually going to outstrip or somehow inherit the world from us. The book is The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Thank you, Ross. Thank you so much, Mark. This was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.